Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 4. No pressure, no diamonds. Sochi, Russia, February 2014. The first day of Olympic biathlon competition is about to reach a golden conclusion for the host nation. Anton Shapulin, a veteran racer, is leading the men's sprint coming into the final shoot. He has shot clear all day and has looked good on his skis. As he enters the range, the air is filled with nervous excitement. All he has to do is hit the targets and he'll win. You can guess what happened next. He shot four, but missed the last. 25 seconds on the penalty loop and he had to ski as hard as he could to try and stay in medal contention. He couldn't quite make it. Finishing fourth, missing out on bronze by just 0.7 seconds. How about another scenario? Lisa Vitozzi, who we've mentioned a fair amount this year for her successes, had a really challenging 2021 season. It's in the percentages. This year, her prone shoot is at 87%. Last year, it was just 61%. Think about it, that means, on average, she was missing two in every five prone shots. It was actually more specific than that. Lisa's challenge last season was the first prone shoot. One of the mantras of biathlon is that it's okay to make mistakes early. But these weren't mistakes. These were a problem. Lisa missed more than three shots in the first shoot in about a third of her races. Some weeks she missed four. Once she missed all five. It was awful to watch. And yet, in between those races, she could shoot clear and finish in the top 10. Lisa hadn't forgotten how to shoot. She had just forgotten how to shoot in those particular moments. This week's episode is all about what happens to biathletes and to all of us when we're under pressure. What goes on inside our heads and what leads us, in the heat of the moment, to choke. Choking happens when you get in your own way mentally or your mind prevents you from performing at your best. It's not a skill problem. It's not a motivation problem. You want to do your best and you have the ability to achieve what you're setting out to do. But it's a combination of mental pressures and reactions in the moment that lead you to not be able to do the thing that you always could. Research shows that biathletes that are in the top positions prior to the last shoot in an individual race have a higher probability of missing the fifth shot than anyone else. Sometimes, like with Anton Shapulin, athletes will lose a big lead because they're afraid of not winning, or they perform tentatively or defensively and they lose trust in their skills. There's also a correlation between longer shooting time and missing the final shot. This isn't based on missing previous shots, you're actually more likely to hit the fifth one if you've missed one of the earlier shots. Interviews with biathletes clearly identified that the fifth shot of the fourth shooting round, so in the longer race formats, is the one in which they experience the most pressure. The athletes also said the loss of focus and starting to reflect on your own performance during a shoot both increase the chances of missing. And like Lisa Vitozzi, athletes can also choke at the start of the competition. They might feel intimidated by the situation or lack confidence in their own mental or physical preparation. They might be distracted by external factors. In the race, this manifests as being scared to lose and losing trust in your own skills. This is what happened to Lisa last year. She was choking at the start of the race, but then with all the pressure and expectation lifted, she would race well 
get decent but not stellar results. If no one expects you to win, you can just race. In this week's episode, I'll be looking at the topic of choking in more detail, why it happens and what to do about it. I'll also be looking ahead to the racing in Annecy Le Grand Bonon, which starts on Thursday. But first, let's look back to the weekend in Hockfiltsen. Hockfiltsen was on good form. It's an incredibly pretty setting for any kind of sport. The arena and the tracks nestle down in between forested mountains. There was plenty of snow, blue skies, sunshine. Perfect winter days. There's always a chimney pumping out smoke in the background in Hockfiltsen, which kind of spoils the view. I thought I'd look it up. It actually belongs to a mining company called RHI Magnesita and is part of a dolomite mining facility there. Dolomite gets used in construction and as a source of magnesium for use in animal feedstocks, so that's something I didn't know. Anyway, biathlon. We started with the women's sprint on Thursday, and as ever, Hannah and Elvira Erberg were super fast over the snow, but struggled in the range again, both missing two shots. That left time and space for those who could shoot cleaner. So our podium was headed by Denise Hermann Vick of Germany with a clean shoot, then Marketa Davidova of the Czech Republic, and Julia Simon of France, both missing one. So far, so normal, until a new player entered the game. Anna Maria Lampic of Slovenia was starting in her first World Cup race. She's a very successful cross-country racer who started to see some success in the lower-ranking biathlon races. So the Slovenian team brought her along. Oh boy, is she fast. She missed three shots and came fifth, just 35 seconds behind the winner. Now each shot missed is a penalty loop of around 25 seconds. So three shots should be 75 seconds or a 1 minute 15 deficit. Another way of saying the same thing, she finished the race in the same sort of time as the Erberg sisters, despite having skied one more penalty loop than them. So there was a lot of excitement about Anna Maria Lampich and whether she could maybe shoot clear. All of her misses in the sprint came in the standing shoot. Partly because of this excitement and partly because of fatigue, she didn't race in the pursuit, which was a shame. She did race in the relay and was predictably fast, but also inaccurate. This is a common issue for former cross-country skiers turned by athletes. How do you manage your skiing to, to keep going quickly, but also learn the patience and skill to be a great shot? Denise Herman Vick has followed the same path across into biathlon, and it's probably taken her five or six years to be consistently in the top ten, um, top five or ten of biathlon races. As one of the TV commentators pointed out, now that you're both skiing and shooting, you have to dedicate equal training time to each. So we've actually seen Denise Herman Vick get progressively slower on skis, but progressively more accurate with the rifle each year over several seasons. It turns out that the overnight sensations rarely happen overnight. Still, Anna Maria Lampich goes into the ones to watch pile because she's very exciting. The men's sprint went pretty much to form with Johannes Tingisbo doing his thing and winning by over 40 seconds ahead of his teammate Storaholm Ligrid and Francis Emilian Jacqueline. The men's relay built slowly over time and didn't really start to shake out until the third leg of the race. Ultimately, the teams with strength and depth managed to hold on, Norway ahead of Sweden and Germany, though there were really good showings from Finland in fifth and from Italy for much of the race. The women's relay was exciting to the last. At the final handover, Sweden, Germany, France and Italy were all together, with a head-to-head -head between Elvira Erberg, Denise Hermann Vick, Julia Simon and Lisa Vitozzi. And Julia Simon was best able to stay composed. 
If you can find a clip of her standing shoot, just wow. I'll mention the concept of flow in a few minutes time, but she shot five out of five in a total time of 18.2 seconds. It usually takes 24 to 25 seconds for an average um, biathlete. Uh, some go a little faster, some go a little slower. But five out of five in 18.2 seconds is, is ridiculous. It's Lego Lass and Lord of the Rings, but faster, on skis, with a heart rate of about 170 beats per minute. It was insane. That's my excitable way of saying that France won the relay ahead of Sweden and Italy, a great result for them. In the pursuit races, well, Johannes Tingisbo started with that 43 second lead and he did his best to blow it with some quite ropey shooting. But those behind him, Ligrid and Jacqueline, couldn't quite hold it together either. Whilst the top three was never really in doubt, the battle for the lower places was quite intense. And it was great to see Quentin Fionmaillet, last year's world champion, starting to come into form and finishing fourth. And the women's pursuit? Well, that was all about Julia Simon again. It wasn't a great day of shooting in general, but she managed 19 out of 20, including all five on the final shoot, to win by a comfortable margin from Ingrid Tandevold of Norway and Marketa Davidova of the Czech Republic, she of the Unicorn Rifle. So back to our main theme of uh, this week's podcast and how we act under pressure um, and why athletes and biathletes choke under pressure. Choking happens a lot when there are big stakes, winning the race, winning a major tournament, performing well in front of a home crowd, beating your toughest rivals. But it's not just bigger stakes that make people choke. Studies have shown that people who are more likely to choke under pressure have a few things in common. One is loss aversion. Loss aversion is when you really, really do not want to lose the prize. And when the potential prize is big, people with high loss aversion are generally more likely to choke than people with low loss aversion. That, that is, kind of people who care a bit less about losing the prize. One way to test how loss averse people are is to offer them a chance to gamble on games with different odds. The loss averse people generally will prefer a game with a better chance of not losing than a long shot, long shot for a big win. Smarter people also choke more. Specifically, people who have a greater working memory, so the amount of stuff you can actively hold in your mind at once, are more prone to choking when they try to act in a high-pressure situation. The reason for that? Well, these are people who are used to being able to get by with their big working memories to solve problems. But when their working memory gets clogged with worry, they have to switch to using other kinds of strategies that they're not as accustomed to, and that takes away some of the natural advantages that they have. Two other contributors to choking, distraction and self-focus. Distraction is when your attention is drawn to things that aren't relevant to the task. This might be internal distractions, so you're noticing your own mental state, maybe you're worried, or external distractions. So you see that the athlete ahead of you has missed a shot and you get excited, or you get distracted by the crowd. At Hockfilson last week, the stadium announcer was incredibly loud, and you could see certain biathletes reacting when they heard their names. The Hockfilson crowd was also very partisan towards the Austrian and German teams, cheering for every hit and sighing for every miss. Different sports talk about home field advantage, but some really interesting research suggests there's a home field disadvantage in biathlon. The best biathletes, male and female, miss more shots at home than in overseas competitions. About 0.25 misses for men and 0.28 for women. Obviously you can't miss a, miss a quarter of a shot, but it does add up over time. 
and could add a minute to your time in an individual race or a trip around that penalty loop. Note that this effect, this home field disadvantage, is very strong in the individual race, where you're coming into the range potentially on your own or only with one or two other athletes, but not in the mass start where everybody's arriving together and there's less spotlight on any one by athlete as they approach the shoot. Self-focus is almost the opposite of distraction. It's about putting so much attention into your shoot that you lose the ability to do it instinctively. Malcolm Gladwell has written variously about examples from tennis, and we can find examples in golf and biathlon too. Here, the athlete is thinking too much and losing their instinctive approach. Instead, they're trying to deliberately think their way through a task, which proves impossible. In talking about Czech tennis player Jana Novotna, who famously choked in the Wimbledon singles final, Gladwell says that she reverted to playing like a beginner. We see that a lot in tennis, particularly with, with serves, when the player loses all confidence. They're actually trying to walk themselves through the motion rather than just hitting the ball in their instinctive, endlessly practiced way. You can also see it in some of the famous choke moments in golf, particularly at prestige tournaments like the US Masters. What does it mean to deliberately start to think about your movement in this way? You can test this yourself. Imagine that you're having a photo taken and the photographer says, just act natural. What do you do? You immediately start to think about your posture, what your hands are doing, if your chin is up, if your belly's sucked in, if it's your good side. You can feel yourself doing it. And that's simply from someone asking you to do nothing. Malcolm Gladwell puts it as follows. Choking is about thinking too much. Panic is about thinking too little. Choking is about loss of instinct. Panic is reversion to instinct. Part of the difficulty of describing biathlon is that it comes down to someone hitting a shot and someone missing. In that regard, it's a bit like golf. Someone has to hit and someone has to miss, or even like high jump or pole vault competitions where the results are decided as much by failures as by successes. Achieving success when your body is under such physical duress, when the stadium announcer has the microphone turned up to max and is shouting your name, and when you can feel the blood pumping around your brain, and when you're mid-race alongside your rivals, it's hard to imagine how anyone hits anything. So how do you overcome all those different pressure points? Well, let's focus on the psychological with the touch of the physiological, and we may come back to some of this in a future episode. Sean Bylock is a cognitive scientist who also played soccer at college level in the US. She's written extensively about choking in sports, and you'll find a link to a TED Talk uh, recording that she gave uh, in the transcript to this episode. She's identified some ways of tackling the issue of choking. Firstly, practice under pressure. Practicing under stressful conditions can reduce the chances of choking. So simulating competition situations, video recording and analysis, or creating a culture where athletes want to perform well for each other, all have an effect on outcomes in different experimental settings. There is a bit of a health warning with this. If people feel that they're being monitored too closely, for example, with lots of video or data analytics, and every movement is being scrutinized, they may perform worse. So applying pressure in practice is best done in combinations with approaches that reward the athlete for what they do well. Secondly, express your emotions before you start. Setting your intentions and practicing your routines can be a powerful combination. The research identifies an example from 2006 in the world of soccer. Tim Borowski, a German national soccer player, is ready to take a penalty kick. 
if he fails to score, he'll have to serve tonight's dinner to his teammates. Just before he shoots, Tim turns to his coach and his teammates and shouts to them where he plans to kick the ball. He also makes sure he tells the goalkeeper. Another teammate is placed behind the goal, jumping and waving his hands to distract Tim's attention. As Tim strikes the ball, the goalkeeper moves immediately to the corner where Tim said he was going to kick the ball, but Tim still scores. This is an example of a training day for the German soccer team. By practicing these types of situations, the sports psychologist working with the team aims to adapt players to the performance pressure in case the match goes to a penalty shootout. Several days after this training session, Germany beat Argentina 4-2 in a penalty shootout to reach the semi-finals of the 2006 Men's World Cup. All the German penalty takers, including Tim Borowski, scored. A third approach to avoid choking is to distract yourself a bit. As we've seen, if you end up thinking too hard about what you're doing, your performance can suffer. Sometimes, if you're asked to focus solely on the task, it becomes impossible. Now, we've also seen that external distractions can have a negative effect. So it's not about looking around at the crowd, but about finding an internal method of self-distraction. We've seen biathletes smiling as they come into the range. Some may well be going through a mental mantra or even singing a song to themselves. Singing a song is really handy if you find yourself skiing down something that's a bit outside your comfort zone. Johannes Tingis Bo has a lovely tell that he does before he shoots. The front end of his rifle sits on his left hand and he sort of flexes and closes his fingers a couple of times to take the tension out. It turns out that this form of hand contraction is a recognised technique for helping to focus an athlete's attention on the task at hand and it improves performance. Fourth strategy, relax. Tennis player Serena Williams seemed all-conquering, but she has had matches where she has choked, particularly when it comes to her serve. She said, if you're behind in a game, it's so important to relax, and that's what I do. When I'm behind in a game, that's when I become most relaxed. Just focus on one point at a time, just that sole point, and then the next one, and the next one. This moment-to-moment -moment focus and staying in the moment is part of a wave of mindfulness thinking that is being applied more and more to sports situations and will likely be the next wave of research papers that we see. Now, mindfulness has gone from helpful psychological foundation to a multi-billion dollar publishing and media industry, so there's a lot that goes around with it. But the core concepts around being in the moment, not judging things, being compassionate to yourself, and taking your ego out of the equation are really helpful. Not judging things means not reacting too much to either success or failure. I think this is a crucial element for, for biathlon. Often after a miss, you see skiers with slumped shoulders. You saw Emilien Jacqueline thumping his rifle. You can see skiers stumbling as they get up from the range or messing up when they try and pick up their poles. You can see tension in how people ski or racers setting off too fast from the range because they're only thinking about making up the time deficit. All of these are direct reactions to the experience of missing a shot. Being able to park that miss emotionally, to let it happen and not judge it, could be an interesting technique for biathletes. And I'd love to know how teams might be bringing that into their training. Now we have a couple of things which seem contradictory, going quickly and slowing down at the same time. Doing a task relatively quickly seems to help. Sean Bylock found that ex experienced golfers putted better when instructed to putt quickly while still being accurate. And this was not the case for beginners. So if you're doing something you know how to do really well, 
taking extra time could make you more susceptible to choking. And perhaps that's why we see athletes like Dorothea Vera, Emilian Jacqueline and Julia Simon shooting so fast in their final shoot. And it's why we know that something isn't quite right when a normally fast shot takes their time on the range. In contrast, we have the quiet eye. Quiet eye theory was developed by Joan Vickers, again primarily with golfers. She connected professional golfers up to a device that precisely monitored their eye movements as they putted their balls. Novices and beginners would tend to shift their focus a lot between different areas of the scene, the ball, the club, the grass, the hole, and they'd move their eyes quite rapidly. More experienced and better players would hold their gaze on the ball longer and steadier, both before and during their shot. The expert athlete actually slowed down their thinking at the crucial moment. Vickers also noticed this quiet eye effect in individual athletes. When an individual golfer looked around the scene, they were more likely to miss than when they settled their gaze earlier and held it for longer. Further research at the University of Exeter has found that athletes who have a longer quiet eye period report that they feel like they're in the zone or in a flow state. That feeling of effortless concentration when you're only aware of the task at hand and it's just happening. Quiet eye also seems to coincide with other physiological changes. The heart rate slows down temporarily, amazingly helpful to a biathlete, and the movement of the limbs becomes smoother. I've mentioned that quiet eye could also help to slow down heart rate. And there's some interesting physiological research that's been done about when during the heartbeat different biathletes pull the trigger. So your heartbeat's in two stages. The first beat is the systolic, that's when your heart is emptying, pushing the blood out around your system. The second beat is the diastolic, that's when your ventricles are relaxed and your heart is filling. Elite shooters pull the trigger during the second phase, the diastolic. Novice shooters don't necessarily have the control to know when they're pulling the trigger, but when it's measured, they get better results if they happen to shoot during the diastolic phase. I'm no doctor, so I have no idea how you stumble upon this, how you practice it. But I imagine that you're very aware of your heartbeat after a few kilometres of cross-country skiing, and that maybe you can control the squeeze on the trigger enough to get it meticulously timed. This might be why the most rhythmic shoots are often the most accurate. This week, we go to France, and the stadium at Annecy-le-Grand-Bonnant. Le Grand-Bonnant is a very typical mountain village in the French Alps, close to Megève and Chamonix. It's a part of France that's sort of curled in amongst the Swiss and Italian borders, and will be very familiar to a lot of British listeners and others who've skied in the Haute-Savoie region. The venue made some unwanted headlines over the past week. The area had not yet had a snowfall, and the valley was still green after a warm November. In preparation for this week's biathlon, snow had to be brought in in trucks. Some was natural snow harvested and stored, while some was artificial snow. There are some quite stark images of the white ribbon of the biathlon track snaking through the green valley around Le Grand Bonnant. It brings the topic of climate change to the forefront, not only of the sport, but more importantly, the futures and livelihoods of communities that have historically made their living from winter sports. What we have seen in alpine resorts in recent years is a transition to year-round tourism, with the promotion of hiking, mountain biking, climbing and other outdoor activities, with some incredible landscape accompanied by amazing food and drink. Snowfall and snow melts seem to have become less predictable. A study of 50 years of snow data across the Alps found that there is less snow, it is generally arriving later, and it is melting earlier in the spring. 
from personal experience a few years ago, temperatures at altitude in the French Alps in February were 15 or 16 degrees Celsius. So not only is it less certain when the snow will come, it's harder to predict how long it will last. The use of stored snow and artificial snow have become much more commonplace, certainly in the French Alps. According to the mountain experts, the use of stored and artificial snow forms only 1% of the environmental impact of an event like the Biathlon World Cup in Annecy this weekend. The vast majority of environmental impacts, particularly carbon emissions, come from travel for the 60,000 or so people who are expected to attend. But that doesn't absolve the snow managers from responsibility for the things they can control, how the snow is stored, how it's cooled and how it's transported. The tragedy of climate change in the Alps isn't as stark and dramatic as that in other countries. The devastating floods in Pakistan, for example, or the existential threat to many small island nations of rising sea levels. Rather, it is an insidious tragedy, which will creep from one village to the next, from one small hotel or family restaurant to the farmer that supplies them. Villages that once created hundreds of seasonal jobs on the mountains and in hospitality, cleaning, retail and transport may not have the same ability to offer employment and could be hollowed out like many rural villages in Spain and Italy where young people simply move away. It will take honest and open conversations between communities, policymakers, the winter sports communities and others who see opportunities both to use and to protect the mountain landscapes in order to help communities evolve positively rather than letting them die. Back to the biathlon, the schedule for this week, uh, racing begins once again on Thursday the 15th of December with the men's sprint at 10 past 1 UK time. Friday the 16th of December, same sort of time, we have the women's sprint. Then on Saturday we have the two pursuit races, the men's race at 11.10 in the morning, followed by the women's race at 2.15 in the afternoon. And then on Sunday, we have mass start racing. The men's mass start um, at 11.10, followed by the women's mass start at 1.15. Who to watch? Well, I hope that the men's races will be more exciting this week, um, but it really depends on one man, and that's Johannes Tinisbo. If he skis the way he has been and shoots relatively well, then he could be unbeatable, at least in the sprint and probably the pursuit. Remember that your ranking in the sprint de determines your start number in the pursuit. In Hockfiltson, he started with a 43-second lead and was never really troubled. That said, Bo wasn't perfect in Hockfiltson, and if others had avoided mistakes, it could have been a lot closer. I'd expect Sturaholm Ligrid, Milian Jacqueline, and Quentin Fionmaier to be there or thereabouts. The mass start could be particularly interesting. 60 races all heading off together, elbows out, not much room to manoeuvre. I mentioned before that the French team seemed to thrive in these head-to-head -head races. And I wonder if we might see a bit of a surprise in the men's field from one of the more consistent shooters who can find a bit of ski pace. So how about Roman Rees of Germany, or my sneaky outsider Jakob Strecki getting onto the podium? On the women's side, despite Julia Simon's great performances last week, the racing is still wide open. Home pressure at Annecy can affect the French athletes very differently. Martin Foucault always said that it was very emotional for him to compete in his home country, and much tougher than competing abroad because of those greater expectations he often underperformed in home events. So we'll see how Julia copes. If she's at the front end of the racing heading into the final shoot, she'll always have a good chance of winning. We might see Lisa Teresa Hauser thriving in the mass start with her ski endurance and her shooting accuracy. And Denise Herman Vick will be feeling confident after her performances in Hockfieldson. How about a few new names for the top 10? Perhaps one of the Chevalier sisters from France, or Vanessa Voigt or Francisca Preuss from Germany. 
but it's hard to see any huge surprises in the top tens unless we all get excited by another lampage moment. I will mention the Oberg sisters again, Hannah and Elvira, simply to say that they've got to figure out their shooting if they want to win races. Their speed is phenomenal. Hannah should be a lock for the mass start, but the shooting is really letting them both down this season. Hannah is only shooting 78% in the prone and 81% in the standing. Elvira is shooting 88 in the prone and 84 in the standing. That both sound great, but compared to Julia Simon, 100% in the prone. Yep, she hasn't missed a prone shot all season, and 90% in the standing, and she's strong and fast to boot. One last thing about avoiding choking. A big part of good shooting is the follow-through. If you've played any sport that involves hitting a ball with a stick, then you'll know the concept. With biathlon, there are technical reasons if you move the rifle too quickly. Effectively, the shell won't have finished emerging from the rifle, and you'll change its path. So the follow-through is essentially just staying really still, after the shot has been fired. This is a practical example of staying in the moment. You literally have to stay where you are until the rifle is ready for you to move. It acts as a break on the process, and that could help create more success. Maybe. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Com. Please do uh, follow me on Twitter at Ski Shoot Repeat and on Instagram Ski Shoot Repeat. Uh, do get in touch if you have any questions, any topics that you'd like me to cover, things I've got wrong, things I've got right, things that you're enjoying hearing about. I'll be back next week to review the racing in Annecy. Look forward to the future racing sessions and have a discussion on a topic that hasn't yet been decided, so we'll see how that emerges over the course of this week. Thank you for listening again to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.